Hey everybody, welcome to the Try Faster podcast presented by the Fort Worth Tri Club, where we talk about triathlon specific topics, mostly training and coaching, and and discuss some news and current events. And my name is Keith Kotar, and I am joined by my co-host Michael Mansfield. How you doing, Michael? Doing really well. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. It's Turkey Trot Week all over. Hopefully, uh, most of you guys are going to be getting into some races on Thursday morning if you have a local turkey trot. So um, if you do and you get into get into a race, shoot us some results. That would be fun to, to hear about all the listeners that are, are racing this week. So uh, in this week's episode, we are going to kick off a multi-part series where we're going to dive into overall training for all of the different distances. So uh, the plan right now is is today we're going to talk about just kind of some overarching themes that apply to all of the distances and kind of just break down things that you will need to know no matter what distance you're training for. And then over the next couple of episodes, we're going to dive into short course training um, and then planning for 70.3 and then for full. Uh, Today, we're also going to recap Ironman Arizona and Ironman Cozumel and have a debate about uh, an, an interesting question that came in this week. So, Michael, how's your training going right now? Um, it's going well. Uh, I know we've talked at ends, right, about the off-season, even in prior episodes. But uh, I'd say it's going well. The hardest part right now for me is I know we're in the base training phase, and I'm, I'm so bored. Like, does anyone else get this way? Do you get this way when you do base training? Like, easy stuff where, yeah, maybe you mix in more strides or even some short sprints. Um, but, like, the VO2 efforts, even, like, this week that we have on the bike, they're just so short. They, like, feel like they're not even contributing to fitness. It's like it's a mind game in my own head. I have to constantly tell myself that this stuff is helping my fitness. Um but when I'm doing the workouts, I'm bored, and I, I honestly don't believe it. Help help me. What do I need to know to, to get my yeah. mind right right now? It's a tough time of year. I don't know. I think it's good. Even when you're doing short, hard stuff, it, uh, it's like a break from doing the long, sustained type of work that we normally do in triathlon. And so I kind of like the winter because I don't have to lock in and focus for some crazy 40-minute threshold-type interval or something like that like it's just nice to do some fast stuff and relax a little bit i guess i guess we're different then because like for me it's like the locking in for the longer efforts are like how i get away that's what i love about triathlon training endurance training in general and this part of the year is the hardest part of the year because i'm trying to keep it so easy it's like my mind wanders or it doesn't wander uh as much because i'm thinking about all the different things that i have to do um all the different things at work and life and family. When I'm in a hard, sweet spot, tempo effort, my mind is more laser focused to making sure the pace, the numbers stay where they need to be. This time of year, it's just, I feel like training is not as much of a relief because of that. I wonder if anyone else is that way. I have no idea. This could just be a complete me problem. I'm not sure. Now, I kind of like the the longer, easy stuff where you can just kind of think about other things and yeah 
So anyway, enjoy, I know it's enjoy being outside. Unless unless you're inside, maybe you're trapped on the trainer, and that that's probably okay. Hard too. Well, then there's the problem. I am trapped on the trainer. Like a, a week ago, I told you I even took a little time off work so I could go get an outdoor ride in, and that was the last day that we saw like 40 plus degrees around here. We've had snow on the ground, so I am on the trainer. I am on the treadmill. It's been, you know, especially I guess maybe those first couple weeks to indoor training takes a little bit of adjusting. I'm working through that. It's not something that's unfamiliar. I'm not surprised that I'm bored or like I a little bit dread training right now. This is this is what happens this time of year. So I'll get through it. Maybe you need a training camp in Texas. I need a couple. Weeks I need a training camp somewhere. That'd be great. It's a wonderful idea. I wish I could do it. So how's how's everything going yeah. on your end? How's the training? And I know you're kind of transitioning into into another block. Uh, it's pretty good right now. I think the last uh, the last episode we recorded right after Worlds, and I raced in one more try that that next weekend, just a smaller local race, and uh, got a win there. It was it was pretty fun to to just kind of get out and do a sprint, do something local, um, and then um, since then, just kind of mostly easier stuff, running a little bit more, and. I've been uh, focused on getting ready for a, a January marathon. And so um, middle of January, I think we talked about this last time, doing a marathon. And so I've got, I believe it's seven weeks from this Sunday before the race. So um, a couple weeks before St. George, I had done like an eight-mile progression and averaged like 601, and that was pretty comfortable. And then this past weekend, I did – the first uh, slightly more specific marathon type workout. And I did six by two miles at about where I think I'll be um, with a half a mile, kind of easy to steady in between. And I think I averaged about 555. So I'm hoping to be around six on race day. So I'm fairly confident. The only thing I think that's I'm a little bit nervous about is I didn't run a ton of mileage going into St. George. And I could tell around 10 or 11, like my legs were starting to get tired and sore already um, but aerobically it's fine so I think kind of just the next month is just going to be trying to run at least a little bit every day just to kind of get the cumulative miles uh, going into it because I think normally like last winter when I was training for road races a workout like that it was 17 miles total was wouldn't really be a big deal um, but now it's Tuesday and my quads are actually still sore which is is really unusual for me um so I don't think I ran enough this summer and in early part of the fall. So that'll be the that'll be the challenge. It's going to be getting the legs probably through the last eight miles or so. Um, but I'd rather fight through the legs. I think like that's the easiest pain to work through on race day. Haha, <laughs> that's funny you say that. So we'll see. <laughs> I think it's easier to just focus focus on on like technique and what you're doing and make your legs move that's easier than you know a nutrition issue or cramping or you know the pain that you have when you're running like a 5k and you're like your whole body's going numb like that's that's the harder stuff i think you just making your legs turn over is the the easiest of the painful things <laughs> i hope you're right how many marathons have you so, run we'll see uh one in a race and two in training okay so um yeah, before I've I've done two basically complete marathon builds, 
Um, and both times I just did a, a three hour easy run beforehand. And so I got the first marathon in, I got both, I, I ran a marathon both times or a little more. Um, so the last build though, I got into like three weeks from race day and then they, they uh, changed the date cause of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. it was 2021 and all they did was push it like a month. I don't know that helped. what the point of that yeah. was, but I couldn't make it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a huge difference. Yeah. So I couldn't make it to the rescheduled date. Um, unfortunately. So yeah, <laughs> but we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. I might run two marathons this spring. I don't know if I had talked about that. There's another local marathon six weeks later. So depending on how the first one goes, I might jump into another one a few weeks after that. Does that mean you're all pull the plug if something's not right, or you're just going to use that fitness and jump into the second one um, for the fun of it? Oh, I would definitely not pull the plug on the first okay. one. I mean, unless something like really, really bad happens. But uh, the second one's right, right here. It's like 15 minutes from my house. And so I'm planning to run something that weekend. I'm just thinking... Um, you know, like if the Louisiana marathon goes terribly, I'll probably run Cowtown, the local race. Um, or if it goes really, really well, and I think I'm fit and can do it again, then I'll probably race the full. And if Louisiana is just mediocre and I get through it okay, then I don't know, maybe not. That'll be so interesting. We'll I see. feel like going. We'll see how anxious I am for triathlon season. Yeah, that, and if you actually are really going hard for a PR, something in a marathon, can you turn around and run another one in six weeks? well i don't know i guess we'll find out yeah Yeah, that that'll be fun to see um but i I think like louisiana too i'm not really going in with any sort of time strategy i'm planning to just go with the leader and race the race like no matter what the pace is from the beginning whether it's really fast or really slow and i'm just gonna race uh, as opposed to run a time and so i could maybe win the race and only run like 240 uh, or i could lose the race and run something really fast. And so I'm just going to kind of try to assess after it's over how I feel like it went probably subjectively based on the outcome. Yeah. So but we'll see. How, how it goes <laughs> strongly depends on the outcome. I suspect. All right. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to jump into the, we'll jump into our main topic for today. Yeah, let's, let's do it. So um, I kind of just wanted to introduce some things before we we kind of dive into really like the nitty gritty of each distance. And so uh, the first thing I wanted to just kind of talk about is just triathlon as a whole and periodization. I think if you're kind of reading the newer science and you're uh, or listening to podcasts and things like that and kind of keeping up to date, um, I don't know if periodization is really the right word for how we're training for triathlon anymore. And so, um, I think it's kind of dying in a, in a little bit of a sense. I think that more and more in triathlon, we're seeing athletes do kind of hit different energy systems all year round, as opposed to trying to just focus on a certain one for, you know, a set period of time, but maybe there's like one energy system that has a big emphasis. And so I think when you're looking at your year as a whole, yeah, the biggest thing that you need to keep in mind is that you're going to hit a lot of different energy systems over time, but your goal is to increase specificity as you get closer to your race. So 
we want to be able to kind of mimic what we do, what we're going to do on race day. Um, and whether that's breaking it into pieces, like one or two sports, you know, maybe you do a swim bike workout or a bike run workout that is, you know, similar to your race, obviously most, especially age groupers, you're not going to go bike 112 miles and then run a marathon, but you might do some sort of ride that simulates your expected stress on the bike and then get off and run a big chunk of the race, you know, uh, just to kind of get that feeling and get into that rhythm. And then maybe you even do the remaining chunk of the run the next day or something like that, uh, just to simulate race pace and know that your body's physically capable of it. Um, and that's a little bit easier to do, obviously with short course, if you're training for a sprint try, you can basically do that anytime you want. Um, and the volume is a little bit different. Um, but specificity is kind of the main thing that we're looking for. I want to ask questions because you keep saying, hey, maybe pure, is periodization, you're alluding to it, is it dead almost? But, like, when I look at my training plan today versus what we were doing before the Chicago Marathon, it's drastically different. So, like, is periodization dead um, or are, we just kind of, are you just using different terminology for it, the specificity? Is that we're, we're being less specific to the demands of the event that we're training for. Because I think of like the training I have going on today is it seems and looks like base. And that's a very traditional feel for the first block of a scheduled training program. Right. And I think that that's true. But I think that um, like the traditional like base period and then like a second base period and then a build and a peak and a race and all that that you've probably read in the triathletes training bible 20 years ago like that sort of progressive model i think is starting to go away uh, just because of the demands of all the three different sports that you can't really let any specific zone or energy system kind of sit dormant you know for an extended period of time and so i think that it's it's come to a point where it's more of a combination all the time we're just kind of varying what we do within each each period if, if you still want to break it into periods but i i feel like um like in a traditional block periodization you're kind of just like trying to sit in one place the whole time and you're just doing similar types of workouts in all three sports over and over again for four to six weeks but then what ends up happening is you kind of lose a little bit of something you know whether it's um, a lot of muscular endurance work you know, during, um, I think the traditional time would be like your base three or your build one, something like that. Uh, and then maybe what ends up happening is you're losing some top end speed or you're losing, um, you know, some of the, the endurance side, uh, just because you're, you're missing, um, you're missing those energy systems. Yeah. So I guess in my, my next question here on the periodization side is, does it change based off of in athletes experience because I'm, I'm thinking like if you're a brand new athlete it doesn't matter what discipline you're going into short middle or long distance triathlon or other events you need a lot of base and it has to you can't mix in a whole lot of upper level intensity because you just don't have the fitness to repeat it it's going to take you much more time to recover versus an athlete that has a lot of experience in the sport endurance in particular and, you know, going from one season to your second or your 10th season to your 11th, you already kind of have a base established. So it's easier to jump into some of those higher demand zones of training 
Does it does that change from a coach's perspective? First season from eleventh season, how you approach periodization, especially those early portions of of a training program. Yes, for sure. And I, that's something I, I plan to dive into a little bit more once we do the specific, uh, the specific distances, because I think that there's, there's a combination of triathlon experience plus sports experience and life experience, right. That all kind of come together. Um, and maybe something that we're going to end up talking about too, is if this is your first year to do triathlon, don't do an Ironman you know, that sort of a thing too. Like maybe there needs to be a logical progression to, uh, the distances. Don't say that. Um, Iron Man is going to come after you. (laughs) And also probably like half of triathletes across the globe anyway, because that's mostly what they do. Right. Yeah. Everybody jumps in, does an Iron Man and then quits. So, um, all the listeners, you just need to make sure that you're, uh, doing some sprints, having some fun. This question is totally sideways, and I know we're not going to have an answer here, but I would totally love to know what is the average life cycle of a triathlete? Like, does a lot, and what I mean by that is, what is the, what do most people pick for their first race? What do they pick for their second and their third? How many races on average does a triathlete do between their first race and their last race? And how much time does that span? Like, what is the life cycle of a triathlete actually look like? Um, I feel like the only people that would truthfully know that would be USA Triathlon because you have to have that damn membership um, for every race regardless of what yeah. it is. They would probably be the best people to kind of like data mine that. It would be so cool to, to know, hey, the average triathlete comes in for three years or five years or whatever, um, and they do this sequence or most likely to do this sequence of events. Uh, it probably skews more toward the higher or longer distance events than it does the shorter is my guess. But I, I don't know that for a fact. It's a lot easier to do a short distance oh. event, but I, I have no idea. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've coached some people who just triathlon is a bucket list thing and we're, we're going to work together for a year and do a half or a full and uh, then they're, they're done, you know, and it's, it's a checking a box instead of kind of getting into the sport. It's an interesting idea. I don't. But, I don't um, um, think that that's a bad yeah. thing necessarily. But I also, what I would always caution people are like people say, "Oh, hey, you do triathlons." And they're like, "Oh, how long have you been doing that?" And I tell them, "Well, my first one was in two thousand eight, so I'm on four, I'm on year fourteen, and um, and, the, and they were, they're always kind of like surprised by that. And the thing I always advise them is just if you want to get into triathlon or running or biking, just go slow with it. Because it's more about creating a lifestyle around enjoying the training, enjoying the process, figuring out how to get stronger, faster, becoming a better athlete versus, hey, I can go do an Ironman in three months and it's going to be awesome. You think that on day one, but by the time you cross that finish line, you are so tired of your bike, you sell it before you're even done with a race and you never you never compete again. Right. And I think I think that those are two different groups of people too. Like if, if you're a, a bucket list person and you just come in and you want to do a triathlon and it's just like a, a thing and you're done and you know, you're going to be done. Like I can admire that somebody wants to do that and that's fine. Like I appreciate that. But then I feel like the people that don't need to jump straight into Ironman are the people that think they want to get into the triathlon lifestyle because then they run the risk of getting run out of triathlon because their first triathlon experience is an Ironman that doesn't go well. Right. Like if you enjoy swimming, biking and running and you want to get into triathlon, 
those are the people I advise start with a sprint, do something local, enjoy it first, and then embrace enjoying it before you try to do something that's going to take you all day. The good news for everyone that's listening, we probably don't have that many listeners that are the bucket list triathletes. I'm guessing most of those people aren't trying to like find podcasts. So people that are listening are probably more the people that enjoy the sport. have been doing it for a while. So speaking to all of you, it is a good thing that we have these people come into the sport for a year, two years, three years, because then they sell all their crap on secondary markets used. Yeah. It's barely been used. I have three bikes and all of them are, are used. I don't have a, I've never minus my first road bike, uh, or my first triathlon bike, excuse me. I have never bought a new triathlon bike minus that one. So everything else, I almost everything in my triathlon equipment list, and we talked about it in the last podcast, if you want to kind of hear that detail, is all used. And it all comes at a really good price because people give up the sport. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, the the other parts of it, like you said, USAT makes you get the membership, right? You have to pay that exorbitant Ironman entry fee. Like, that's just... Uh, money going into the triathlon economy so it's always a plus that they're out there uh, doing the one-off or two races you know whatever it is yeah so it is a plus for everybody it might not look like a plus when usat looks at their membership numbers kind of undulating maybe over time uh, because of people that maybe flux in and flux out but i think as a whole it is uh it's good for for the sport to get those dollars in it is yeah. um but speaking of of used equipment this is not related to our topic, but a huge shout out to Cannondale. I, I do not have a used Cannondale. I'm, I'm the original owner of my bike and I have a, a crack in my rear dropout and they are warranty replacing the bicycle. So I'm going to get a new, a six years, seven years newer model super six. So very appreciative. So if you do uh, have a Cannondale, uh, make sure if you're the original owner, check out the warranty. If something goes wrong, you never know. That's pretty sweet for a couple of reasons. Looking One, you it. showed me the pics. And I don't know if it's fair to say you have a crack in your rear seat today. Because you, your your derailleur, just you completely blew your derailleur off. And it, it swung around and smacked your yeah. seat today. So you broke it, or your derailleur broke it, most likely. Yeah. And Cannondale's still covering it. So that's really cool. Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm definitely excited about it. My bike was kind of getting old, and and it felt like it didn't have the same get-up as it used to, so it kind of works out time-wise. Yeah. That's, that's kinda reminds, <laughs> that kind of reminds me of, like, you see, like, those memes and stuff, and it's, like, adulting. It, or, like, it's no fun to be an adult anymore because I got these new pair of shoes, and no one asked me how fast I can run. <laughs> like, it's all about the bike. My bike's getting slow. I need a new one. Yeah. So I've gotten a lot of miles out of that bike. I was uh, talking to somebody about it yesterday. It's probably in the fifty to 60,000 range. So uh, it's gotten a lot of wear over the last 10 years or so. Good stuff. Yeah. So uh, jumping back into uh, our topic, I guess, uh, yes, if you're, if you're new, there's a little bit different of a periodization model, and I think we'll, we'll talk about that with each individual distance and kind of how to approach that. Um, and so, yeah, if you're, if you're new, I, I feel like the most important things to work on are your aerobic capacity and your top end speed, just to kind of give a quick overview, because I think that working on your top end speed f forces you to have proper technique, uh, 
So, um, and also if you're new, you probably don't have the muscular endurance to do sustained things, but you could do something fast for 10 or 15 seconds. And so I think that that's kind of the best work is the really, really, really high end stuff. Um, and then also the easy stuff where you can just start working on the aerobic side, get fitter, get comfortable in all the sports or whichever sport maybe you're new at if you come from um, a single sport background. And so, yeah, top end speed and, and the aerobic capacity for the new newer athletes, for sure. Um, and then I think just uh, the last thing about the overall side, uh, just that you also need to remember that you might have a, a workout that's geared toward a certain energy system, but you're going to hit several energy systems along the way, whether that's warming up in between efforts, um, in your cool down, uh, even during efforts, you know, you might be doing a workout that's kind of geared toward VO2 max, but you know, the beginning of your intervals or in the beginning of the workout, you're not going to be in a VO2 range. You know, you're going to be somewhere lower and you're going to have to work up to it. You know, you're going to come down, you're going to spike. Um, and then maybe even in the process of trying to get to that effort, you're actually, um, going higher in your legs. So like neuromuscularly, you might be producing a big effort, um, even though aerobically you're not there yet. And so there's a lot of things to consider, you know, when you're crafting workouts that, you know, you're going to spend, how much time are you actually going to spend in different zones? Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. Um, and then I think the last part of this was, um, I wanted to kind of hit on if whether or not you need to touch every energy system regularly in every sport. And I think not, not exactly. I think it's, you're going to naturally a little bit here and there. Um, I don't think you necessarily need to design workouts though for every energy system, you know, especially when you're getting close to race day, if you're trying to work on your top end, you know, like VO2 max area aerobically, right. You can do that in the pool. So it's safer than doing it on the run or on the bike or something like that. Um, when you're getting close to the races and we're kind of, we're more worried about muscular endurance in your legs than trying to run really fast and maybe tweak something or just cumulatively, you know, too much load from running fast. So I want to ask, a, I think that's the last thing overall. Yeah. So period is, yeah, I don't know ahead. if this question fits here or, or maybe later, or maybe not at all, but do you recommend all of your triathletes to swim all year round? Or is there a use case yes. to say, I know, okay, maybe recommend is the, the, yes is the obvious answer. Is there a use case to say it doesn't make that much sense to add in a whole bunch of training time when most people are already crunched on the time aspect of things and incorporate swimming in a different part of the season? Like, or is it a, the answer is always yes. I don't know. What do you think? I believe the answer is always yes, just because it's, it's for most people. I mean, unless you come from a really high level swimming background, like if Lauren Brandon decided to not swim over the winter or if her husband Barrett decided to get back into triathlon after his gravel racing, he probably doesn't really, he could probably swim a 16 minute 1500 within a month. Right. So it just depends on your background, but I think, 99% of the people you need to keep swimming um, because it is, it's a big aerobic gain. So I think there's a huge fitness benefit to swimming 
Um, and also like the comfort side of things, you know, everything kind of feels funny. You lose the feel for the water. I'm really scared for when you get back in the water. I don't know what's going to, what it's going to be like, uh, since you haven't swum in a year, over you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things. Yeah. Over a year. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you need to swim all year round and, and maybe it's not, you're not advancing it necessarily all winter, but if you can get in the water at least once or twice a week to keep the feel and, you know, maintain a little bit of swim specific fitness and especially, you know, give give a load off your body. Cause the fear too, is that if you're, um, try to keep the same volume over the winter and then you supplement that with running or cycling, maybe, maybe more running because it's winter. And that's kind of the easy thing to do that you end up getting hurt from too many run miles without, uh, building up enough. Interesting. I, as a time crunch triathlete, don't feel that way. Like, I feel like I just, it's not worth it. And the only reason I say that is like in the four months that I swam in 2020, 2021, um, four or five months, I feel like I was able to get to kind of where I had been historically with more swim time, more time in the pool, more, more, more yards, more meters. And that the need to improve upon that time would have been substantially, or the time that it would take to improve upon my performance would have been substantial and not worth it in comparison to the other areas. And injury, injury probably is not as much of a concern for me on this on the bike in the run because i'm again already time crunched where getting in the miles on in either of those disciplines or the time in either of those disciplines um, i think again not a concern yeah and i think that for somebody like you who's a good swimmer pretty naturally that that's the case and i think that you always get some fitness back pretty fast but you know if, if you're uh if you're two minutes per hundred and beyond, especially, uh, I think you need to keep the, the touch time with the water just to make sure that you're, uh, always keeping a feel and keeping a moderate level of fitness. Cause you don't want to lose that and then have to get a lot of work in just to kind of get back. Um, but I think if you're a higher, higher level swimmer that you should be okay with, with less swimming. Uh, but I still would recommend at least every once in a while getting in the water. I, I get in the water when I shower, that's about it right now. So we'll keep it there for the time being. I probably, I'm going to stick to kind of like, you know, just being a time crunch triathlete, like getting into the swim closer to race day. Um, and since like triathlon, we talked a little bit, I'm still doing Chicago marathon next year. Triathlon's kind of that B I want to do more racing. It's, but it's a little bit more of that B priority this next year. I'll probably keep the swim pretty limited. I want to do more, but yeah. it'll probably be a 2023 focus, not a 20, or excuse me, a 2024 focus, not a 2023. Just get an endless pool, put it in the backyard. Uh, that'd be cool, but if it's in the backyard, it'll probably turn to ice. <laughs> I have to put it in the basement like uh, Lionel had when he lived in Canada. He had one in the basement. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it really helped him a whole lot. Yeah, I feel like his swimming has almost gotten worse again. That's what he said. He, he, candidly, that's what he says on, on, when you listen to his YouTube. He's a worse swimmer. He's a worse biker. He's a worse runner. 
probably not true, but yeah. no, it's just everybody else has gotten so much better that uh, he's just stuck. He's getting left behind. So um, now I just wanted to to kind of dive in a couple things to think about within each sport, and we'll we'll try to jump through these pretty quickly. Um, the swim, not a, not a whole lot to say about the swim, other than. From a training perspective, uh, when we're talking about it, we're probably going to be using distance and pace because those are going to be your main drivers in training. Um, you know, open water swimming, there's a lot of variance. Um, and also in the open water, you're not really going to know, you know, where you are, how fast you're going, um, other than maybe counting buoys, things like that to give you an idea. Um, and so it's harder to, you know, total energy consumption is something we're going to talk about. And I think for most people, uh, training at home, it's pretty hard to, to calculate accurately your, your energy consumption while you're swimming. And so uh, for the most part, it's your distance and your pace that we're going to be, be talking about. For like, you've uh, already mentioned it though, like from a training perspective, trying to get ready, even throughout the season, like swimming's all about skill. It's about technique. It's about drills. It's about less try to go as fast as you can and more about how fast can you go with as little effort as possible. And if you get efficient in the water, then you can really crank up the effort to to show right. speed, right? And like that, that mindset, yeah, we use distance and pace, but no matter what you're doing for any type, whether you're trying to do easy efforts, whether you're trying to do some more uh, spicy efforts, it's always, always about trying to do them as streamlined and efficient as you can when you kick off the wall in between every single pull like is your body position right are you doing this with less arm turnover per length like everything needs to be about efficiency throughout the entire year that's how i see it and i don't really swim at all so yeah take that with a grain of salt right <laughs> no that's right and and i think that's something we'll talk about too um just kind of where you are in swimming and we'll probably we probably need to have an episode or two at some point about each individual sport in itself. You know, we, we've done a lot of episodes that are kind of more like overviews, but well, hopefully this, this next year, we're going to be able to dive into the, the details, the finer details a little bit more. Um, so then looking at the bike, you know, we can use power and, and heart rate to some extent are probably the, the things that we'll talk about the most. If you've got the technology at home and you think you can, take take blood and measure lactate and use that effectively um that's probably the best route but there is a lot of science involved and that's something you really need to be familiar with and comfortable with um so power and heart rate your even your perceived effort are going to be they're, they're going to be your guides um so then when you're starting to build your training earlier we had talked about race specificity and so i think one of the things that you need to keep in mind is what the course is going to be like that you're riding on um, and not just from a training perspective, trying to train on a similar course, but knowing, you know, how long you're going to be out there, right? I think I think there are enough tools out there now, and and you can probably test some things at home and figure out, you know, if I'm doing this Olympic distance race, I'm going to be on the bike for 70 to 75 minutes. Like I, I think in most cases, as long as nothing goes wrong, you can probably estimate within a couple percent or even one percent you know, of the time that you're going to be out there. Um, and that, that could be really important, especially as you get into the longer races, you know, uh, training for St. George, I was training for a two hour and 45 to two hour and 50 minute ride in my head, you know, as I planned workouts, 
Whereas if I was training for 70.3 Texas in Galveston, I would be training for a two hour and 15 minute ride. Right. And so when you look at those two races, they're the same distance, but they're drastically different races. Like you're, it's almost like you're training for a different distance because of the course expectation. And so um, another thing that you'll hear us talk about, and I, I just mentioned was energy consumption. And so it's a lot different from an energy perspective, right? So if you say, oh, well, I'm going to ride 85% of my threshold and sure, maybe you're going to ride 85% of your threshold at Galveston, but you're going to take 30 extra minutes to ride the same percent at St. George, right? So then it's a huge difference in energy cost. And so that's something else that we'll talk about and, and how to calculate that and uh, figure out how much energy you're using um, out on the bike course. Yeah, I, I think a couple other points that come to my mind, like you mentioned St. George versus Galveston. And yes, it's a different distance. It's also a different, and it might not, it's not the right answer, but it's a different energy system too, because we're humans. Right. And most of us as amateurs just want to ride with the group. We see the group pulling away. Um, we're going to ride a little bit harder. When you go to Galveston, everyone's going to be zoned in. They might not even look up candidly because they're just going to be looking at the white line on the road and they're going to hit their power number and they're just going to be going. It's going to be a very steady effort. Whereas you go to St. George, there's, yes, there's Snow Canyon on the 70.3 race. There's another climb in the full Ironman, but there's a lot of rollers that are five minutes long. And people are going to push up those rollers more at a tempo or sweet spot effort. Um, and they're going to break out of that 70 to 80% of threshold barriers that they might have set for themselves at the start of the race. So it's a totally different race um, in terms of, of how people ride it. Um, and I think in training, not a lot of people account for that. right? Like If you, if you know you're going to race right. St. George, do you account for doing more sweet spot and tempo in your training program? Or because you know the best way to ride it is to just stick to... 75, 80% of threshold, and you're going to actually do that. I think either answer is right, right. but like that's a conversation to have with your coach. How, are, how do you think you will truthfully ride that course? Right, and sometimes, I mean, even in St. George, it's not even the ability to, to truthfully stick to your plan. Like sometimes the climbs are just steep enough that you're stuck. Like you have to go 90% yeah. of your threshold just to keep moving. And so... Um, those are things to keep in mind. And, and again, we'll, I think we'll dive into that when we get into the, the specific episodes. Yeah. And the other comment I want to make on lactate, like that, that, that applies to just the pros, right? Are there actually amateurs out there spending $24 on a single workout to make sure they have their zones, right? Like if you're not making so money in this for, sport, who's doing that? From what I understand, a lot of the people at Kona that are age groupers were out there taking blood while they were, while they were actually riding, um, and maybe that's where the sport has gone. You know, maybe before that's the wild. Norwegians got out, maybe they should have created their own lactate reader to sell or something, um, since everybody started buying them or got a, a lactate reader sponsor, so that they could um, make some money off all this because they're the reason that people are doing that now. That's like another good thing. Um, I, everyone should check out Slow Twitch. I don't know. It's good for a lot of those surveys pre-Kona, like bike surveys, shoe surveys. Like all, They do all that types of stuff. I think triathlete.com also does it, triathlete magazine. Um, but Slow Twitch does a lot of in-depth ones and looks at different brands. I wish that they would ask people questions on what types of 
devices do you use to measure your training? Power, heart rate, and right. lactate, just to see over the course. And lactate's been around for a while, but it is... A it's long been, time. I would say it's steadily gaining popularity. It feels like maybe it's booming a little bit, but I, I don't feel like it's... I say the word booming, I don't feel like it's that predominant. It's a long ways from being predominant, but maybe I maybe I just right. It's just it's not quite accessible enough. But there's also people that kind of do faux lactate, right? They go get a lactate test, and then they they think that there's like some magical heart rate that will will make sure that they stay in in LT one or something like that or below LT two. Um, but I think we all know that there's environmental conditions that are going to affect your heart rate, and whether or not you're actually above or below LT two, you don't know. Um, and I think we've mentioned that before, but keep that in mind if if you're training that way. We could have a whole nother um, conversation on lactate end zones, but yeah, yeah, we'll save that. Yeah, one of these days I'll I'll get a lactate reader and we'll give it a try, and and I'll let you know what happens. I feel like so. like I'm wearing this Garmin watch; it measures my sleep. I'm wearing like there's so many devices to tell you how you feel that people right. actually have lost the intuition to know how they feel. It's like, it doesn't matter how I feel. I just need to listen to the numbers. Sometimes you do just need to listen to how you feel. Like if your lactate right. doesn't align with your perceived effort, does that mean you're, you should push yourself beyond your perceived effort? Maybe, but sometimes you should also back off of what was prescribed. Yeah. Like, I think we get, yeah, and, maybe, and maybe we're getting a little bit caught up on what the numbers dictate. Yeah, don't, don't just do what your whoop tells you. So, uh, and then, uh, the last part, just kind of hitting on the run a little bit, you know, I, I, I think that power is still kind of the best thing on the run. Um, you know, pace can be useful, but at the same time, you know, pace when you're on a really hilly course, or if you're in Texas and the wind is 20 miles an hour every day, it's not really useful at all. You kind of have to throw it out. So, uh, just like cycling kind of stick to the power, think about, um, making sure that your work level is the same. Um, and then just like the bike kind of have a plan for how long you're going to be out there. Right. And it's even, we can compare the same two courses, right? Galveston has a less than a hundred feet of climbing on the run. St. George this year had 700 feet of climbing on the run. You're not going to be out there the same amount of time. So the energy is different. Um, and that's another big plus with the power meter is a 3d power meter can basically tell you exactly how many calories you're going to burn. And so, you know, that's something I'm using for this marathon is I know pretty much within a couple minutes, hopefully five minutes, maybe either way, how long I'm going to be out there. Um, I know exactly how many gels I need. Um, and so that kind of, that, that sort of thing helps too. I, I honestly think you need to reach out to stride, get them to sponsor you with like a device and a tattoo or something. You're all about the power. So anyway, I like the power too. Yeah. I thought it was helpful when I had it. Unfortunately, everyone, I lost mine in a hotel somewhere on a run. And uh, I, I decided not to get another one, mostly because like it was informative, but it, did, it, what, it didn't dictate my training, even working with you. Like it didn't dictate my paces. So I think effort, pace, heart rate in combination you can get a very similar outcome, right? I mean, you're not, yeah, you're not telling athletes that don't have power that you can't coach them. There's still a lot of opportunity. Right. There's still a lot of feedback. There's still metrics that you can track. 
So for me, I feel like power is perhaps helpful, but even when I had it, it didn't dictate my training much. Right. Yeah, and I think that the more time you spend with it, though, it does uh, it does give you a nice number to look at, uh, especially on race day. You know, like I can look and see that, hey, 320 watts is where I want to be, not necessarily, you know, uh, maybe this mile is a little bit slower or a little bit faster based on the course. Um, I can I know that I'm at least putting out the same effort and can kind of relax mentally if I'm a little bit slower. I guess that's helpful. All right. Um, maybe it, maybe it could have held me back in Chicago a little bit, but um, it's also kind of amazing too when you just look at it. You're going to be racing your marathon. You're going to race the race, uh, and then also like the number right. of pros that just leave transition. They don't even have a watch, let alone a stride power meter. Like they're just going out there to race the race, measure their effort, and get to the finish line as quick as they can. All right. So I think like with enough miles, with enough know of your body, you get to that point where the power meter is not going to dictate your result. It might be informative, but it's not going to dictate how you put your effort out on the course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just depends on the way you want to race. Yeah. All right. So do we want to recap the two big races from the weekend? Yeah, I think we should. And, um, what Arizona first Cozumel. Uh, let's do Cozumel first, and then we'll we'll use Arizona to transition into our question. Okay. Iron Man Cozumel. I honestly didn't watch this one. This had a much smaller, at least a field of interest um, from my perspective. But uh, first place on the men's side, Magnus Ditlev, the He was obviously the expected winner from this field, but do any other results stick out to you as, as kind of surprising? Yeah, not not really on the men's side. Uh, Rudy von Berg uh, maybe didn't quite have the run that you would expect. Uh, he only had the eleventh fastest run and and faded out to uh, to eighth um, after being out of the water with the lead group. Um, but like you said, I think that we knew that Magnus was probably the guy, and you know it was it was expected for him to win. Uh, yeah. Jan van Berkel though finished second. He had a really nice run, two fifty oh nine. And uh, ran his way up into second, um, and then third place was uh, Fernando Taldi from Brazil. Yeah, um, I guess tail of the tape then, though, as if you look at the at the numbers, you look at the results. Um, Magnus again, this is this is quite interesting because Lionel Postcona said, uh, "Ditlev's the guy, right? If you can't swim as fast as Ditlev, you can't race Ironman." And he went and swam forty three thirty nine, which is a pretty respectable. Ironman swim. It was eighth overall. There was a small group about two, a little less than two minutes ahead of him. That included Rudy Von Berg. So Rudy was in that front group on the swim. Uh, Magnus was two minutes behind, right? A pace that we probably wouldn't see Lionel be able to, to hold. But the impressive thing here is he blew the bike to, to pieces, 404. So he came off and yeah, he only won by three minutes, but he came off the bike with nearly a eight or nine minute lead. Uh, over second place and um, Jan van Berkel closed the gap but I like it was a three minute win I think Dilev was easing up like he knew he had it in the bag he ran a 259 he can certainly run faster than that he was doing what he needed to to get to the finish line 
yeah, it, it looked like it was it was pretty comfortable for him. So um, that's good. He's uh, I think he still needed to get his Kona spot, and so yeah, um, that's good for him. Um, because there were obviously with racing already going on, uh, there's some people that that qualified previously. So, um, but he, I'm looking at the list just to make sure he did not have a spot yet. And so I believe this race had two. So, um, Ditlev would have gotten a spot and then, uh, Jan van Berkel also took a Kona spot. Yeah. Um, and then on the women's side, we had, uh, Garutz Freitas Laralde from Spain, uh, getting the win. She was, I believe 14 minutes down from Lisa Norton off the bike and then had the fastest marathon of the day by nearly six minutes. Uh, she outran Lisa Norton by nearly half an hour and she ended up winning the race pretty easily by about six minutes. Um, Lisa Norton hung on for second and she ended up getting a Kona spot as well. Um, but only 13 finishers on the women's side out of 16 starters. So pretty, pretty small race. I, like, I, I'm starting to wonder, like, does Lisa overbike? Like, is that a common theme, like, if we went back and looked at her results? Like, she always, she it, seems to be, like, be. one of the aggressors on the bike, typically leading at the front of the packs or trying to make passes. She had the fastest bike by six, seven, eight minutes here. She swam really well, as she usually does, but she just wasn't able to hold it together on the run. Could have been the heat, could have been the humidity, or is this just, like, something she's still trying to, get wraps of how how much she can bike use that power and but still have something to save on the run she just she ran a pretty uh, i mean 323 is a very fast marathon for most people but if you're trying to compete which she is at the top of the women's field that's not going to cut it yeah and i think it's really interesting too because in her you know itu days she was a, a fairly solid runner you know olympic silver medal um, and so it's kind of surprising that maybe she doesn't trust the run yet. Um, that would be my guess, kind of the way that she's raced. Uh, but also being a front pack swimmer, maybe it's easy to just kind of get in the front and hit the bike really hard. And so maybe that's something she still has to, to figure out. Yeah, she'll, I think she can. she's definitely an athlete to watch, but she's got to slow the bike down and really improve on that run. She can do it, clearly, but she hasn't shown it yeah. yet. But, hey, she got her Koner spot, so she's now going to be back in Kona next year. Yeah. So then uh, we can jump to Ironman Arizona. We'll start start with the women in this one. Um, so uh, for the women, we saw Lauren Brandon come out of the water more than two and a half minutes up. And she was caught fairly late in the bike. She had a good ride. Um, I saw that she was sick. And so uh, she started to have some issues partway into the ride, uh, but she made it to the finish line. Uh, she ended up 10th, uh, but taking the win was Sarah True, um, five minutes up on Sky Munch. Uh, they came off the bike essentially together, and then uh, Sarah ran away kind of in the late, later stages of the run. Uh, Sky ended up in second, and then... A uh, further 16 minutes back from Sky was Daniel Lewis in third. This field was a little bit bigger than Cozumel, but still just uh, 16 finishers here. Yeah. Uh, 
two Kona slots, so Sarah True Sky both got Kona slots. I think what was interesting to me is, like, Lauren Brandon, she always feels like she has to use that swim, which I which I suppose makes sense. I didn't know she was she was sick, um, so maybe that, that explains the results a little bit there because she's still a better biker and a better runner than I think what she showed. Um, but Sarah True was only a couple minutes back from Lauren Brandon. Uh, and she swam by herself. And then Sky Munch had a couple people near her exiting the water, I believe. Uh, a couple minutes back. No, she still had a couple minutes to the next person. Oh, she did? Yeah. I mean, this field got yeah, completely Yeah, it was two minutes back out. to fourth. So I think that that was yeah. pretty interesting. Um, we saw in Kona that the women's field, the competition, is tightening. You just kind of had a lot of different athletes in different areas here. Um, Sarah True Sky coming off the bike close to, to one another. I liked... I liked Sarah's performance here. It was a colder race, though. This is something I've always talked about with Sarah, and it's obviously well documented. Is she's had trouble in the heat. She ran really well here, though. So a 255 is pretty impressive. You can't count out that mom. Mom's got power. We saw it in Kona already. Yeah. With Chelsea, Sarah's mom now. She can do it. Like you can't count her out. And uh, I, I guess overall, I'm excited to see her starting to come back to form. Um, Sky mentioned in one of her pre-race interviews that she had not been Ironman training. So she was really kind of re relying on the fitness she had built up over the year. And she's been doing some shorter efforts, more 70.3 oriented training. Um, so perhaps Sky wasn't in her, her peak form, but for Sarah still to, to beat Sky, I think is, is really impressive and maybe a sign of things to come. Yeah, that's that's exciting for her, and, and like you said, I'm I'm glad she got her Kona spot out of the way, so we'll get to to see her back there next year. And she's 41. Wow, that's that's I mean, impressive. four years ago she was a contender at Kona. Like you go back to Kona for you know pre-pandemic, Sarah True was one of the main contenders. And like there was that whole yeah. the drama around her getting pulled off the course. Oh, where was it again? Um, Germany. In, in Germany, yeah. Yeah, and she got pulled off the course like less than a mile to go from the finish by a volunteer who thought she needed help, even though she was like 10-plus minutes ahead. And then she lost. She would have easily had her Kona slot there. She would have crawled to the finish line. Um, like, she's an impressive athlete, and I hope she can make a comeback to anywhere near that form. would be super, certainly impressive. Yeah, for sure. Um. So now, uh, moving on to the men's race. I guess you predicted this one successfully. <laughs> Joe Skipper getting getting the the win. He came off the bike with Christian Hogenhaug, um, and then there's a little bit of a gap back to Ben Canute, and then kind of a bigger gap back to the main pack. Uh, Matt Hansen though ran 2:35 to get his way up into second, and then Ben Canute went. 245 on the run, 751 overall in his first Ironman, and ended up getting third. And the kicker here is Joe Skipper already has a Kona spot, so Matt Hansen and Ben Canute both get their spots. So do, is this like Ben has to commit to Kona, though, to, to take the slot? Did he do that? He did take the spot. Okay. So we'll see if he decides to race Kona. He can always give it back, and it'll it'll move. Oh, it does. Um, but I think he's, I think he's showing that he's ready to move up. I think it's time. That's exciting. 
I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I thought Joe and Matt would have been the two Kona slot winners. I didn't know Joe already had one. Um, I think I'm in, I'm more and more impressed by Joe Skipper every single race. We saw him in Wales when he flatted 10-plus minutes off the bike and was still able to run to a pretty sizable victory. Um, and then in Kona, I think he was like fifth. Um, so he's not right. he's not swimming very well. But he's using his bike yeah. and his run. Kind of like, hey, that's what Lionel wants to do. That's what Sam Long wants to do. And they get a lot of press for it. But Joe Skipper doesn't get the press or the attention he deserves. Because he's racing the same exact way that some of those big names are racing. And he's just doing it better. Yeah. And he's still, you know, it feels like he should be older. But he's also only 34. It it feels like he's been around forever. Yeah. but I don't think he really, he didn't really have a short course career. He just was one of the guys that has always been around uh, the long course scene. And so it seems like he's old, but he's not. And so, um, yeah, it's it's fun to see him up there. Um, and especially like you had mentioned, like Ironman Wales, you know, coming back to get a win there. That's actually where he got his Kona spot. So it was late enough that it was it was qualifying for 23. Um but I'm really excited to see Ben Canute getting third. That's, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's big. I, I know I've said it. I think I've said it on the podcast. I know I've said it to you that I think that Ben Canute is our, our best chance to get an American win at Kona on the men's side. And so it's time, it's time for him to move up. He's 30 yeah. now, or he's going to be 30 next month. And, uh, yeah, I think he's, he's ready. Here's, here's kind of another surprising thing in my own head. Joe Skipper in the PTO rankings, and I guess maybe Arizona hasn't been factored into everything yet, but he's 14th. He was 5th in Kona. 5th in Kona. After getting 5th, he's still ranked 14th on the PTO rankings. I certainly hope this moves him up quite a bit, even though the field here wasn't that substantial. It should He, he should be a top 5 PTO rankings athlete. Yeah. Top seven, top eight at the worst. Yeah. But then you still have a guy like Al- Alistair Brownlee, I believe. He's still up there in the top seven or eight. Guy's done nothing. He's he's number seven. This is completely yeah. frustrating. Joe Skipper doesn't get the attention he deserves through social media, YouTube, everywhere else. Doesn't get the rankings that he deserves from the PTO. But he just puts right. up and performance what he needs to performance. do. If he wants to improve his ranking, he needs to go do one of the PTO Opens. Because there's a there's a point bonus to doing that. Yeah. 5%. Okay. Well, he's got to play the system so. a little bit better than I guess. Because uh, he's a lot better yeah, than his, his ranking always suggests. And those those rankings mean money, right? He should And he should get the money right. that he deserves. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm excited about Ben Canoe. But first, we should talk about Matt. Because, like, a 235, he's screaming fast on that run. He chased yeah. down... Ben Canute. He, I, I don't. What was he coming off the bike? Like he wasn't even showing up. I was looking. I, I was busy in the afternoon. I, he was not even showing up on my tracker's first page off the bike. The Iron Man yeah, tracker. Um, I had to like flip to the second page, and then I just saw him roaring to the top of the list. I was like, "Watch out, Matt's coming." Yeah. He, I think he was about ten minutes behind Ben Canute, and about fourteen minutes behind Joe Skipper, give or take, off the That's bike. Wild. Um, and he he ran 
really, really well. Got up, got up into second. So that's, that's good for him. Um, he's a guy I feel like, you know, maybe six, seven years ago when he was kind of getting rolling, um, he looked like a guy that maybe could win Kona, but it's, it's the swim and he's a solid cyclist, but he's not a game breaking cyclist. And so when he's coming out of the water with Sam Long or maybe a little bit ahead of Sam Long, I don't think he has the bike power to, to hang. And that's, that's what's holding him back the most, but his run is obviously phenomenal. His run can compete with the Norwegians. Like, I wonder, like he goes with such a praying mantis position and he, like, is there anything he needs to better optimize? Like maybe that praying mantis doesn't work for everybody. Like is like has he right. been is to the wind tunnel? Is there something else he needs to be evaluating there? Because he's too strong of a runner to be coming off the bike with literally he was fourteen minutes slower than Joe Skipper. Like you can't be fourteen minutes slower than the winner on the bike. You're not gonna have a chance. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's way too much time. Yeah. So like I would love to see him kind of work to close that gap. And when you when you hear the Norwegians, like again, they always talk similar to the swim. How fast can you go for the least amount of power? Like, can he, you might not get a lot stronger at this point of your career. Like, your threshold's not going to change a whole lot. There are, well, these are all well-trained athletes. Is there anything he's missing that he can better do on the bike to get a little bit more speed? Yeah, Stuff there's, something there's probably shirt, something. Know? Like all those guys in Kona were doing. Yeah, yeah there's there's got to be something that he can get just a little bit more out of It's, it's, it's called uh, the for as good of an cup. athlete as he is. You stick a cup right yeah. in your cleavage. Five watts. I'm gonna I'm gonna sell those this holiday season. So if anyone wants one, um, they're ninety nine, ninety nine, and uh, I'll send you a cleavage cup. Save yourself five watts. All right. So um, this is going to transition into our our question: Is uh, is Ben Canute the greatest American triathlete of all time? What do you think? No, but I think he's close enough that he's going to be within the next two years. Greatest of all time. That's a big banner. Greatest American triathlete of all you, time. You, you proposed this question. I was like, do you even know what GOAT means? Like, maybe he's the most, <laughs> maybe he's an athlete right now that wears the stars and stripes that we have the most, he's the most hopeful athlete. For future results, but is he the greatest of all time? Like, what? He's thirty, thirty-one years old. That's a lot. He's. I don't know if you could possibly say that. What does he have to his name to to make you feel like okay. he's the greatest American of all time? Okay, we'll go way back. He has a youth national championship. That's pointless. <laughs> if you has, want to be the greatest, it is that's pointless, pointless. But it's it's the launch point. It's the launch point. He has two junior national championships. He has a junior Pan American championship. He's got, we're going to go through all of his accolades. He has 12 world triathlon podiums. He is a world champion in the mixed team relay. Uh, he has multiple podiums in the mixed team relay at the world championship. I'm still waiting for you to say something that matters when we're talking about the greatest of all time category. He went to the Olympics, finished 29th in the Olympics. 
Okay, that that matters. Okay, but I don't know if it's right, a good result. He has result. two podiums. Well, given our American results, I've, I, we can't ask for too much more than that. Um, he has five wins in ITU events. He has two podiums at the seventy point three World Championship, and then now he's gone seven fifty one for Ironman, which. Someone maybe can correct me. I think it's the third fastest ever by an American, but I could be wrong. Um, he's won Escape from Alcatraz who knows how many times. He's won a handful of 70.3s, and next he's going to win Kona. And when he wins Kona, then I think we say he's the best American of all time. One Kona win? Or even when... Yeah. Greatest of all time, American tag. I mean, over over all of his career, he's he has done. He's been successful at every level of triathlon. He's been successful, but Mark me, Allen doesn't count. Yeah, I was like, well, we have we definitely have some some championships, some Kona's winners. That why don't they count? Why wouldn't Mark Allen count? Greatest. So of when all Mark time. Allen won, Mark Allen won the very first IT World Championship, and it wasn't draft legal, and no one was really doing triathlon. There were like 10 good guys, right? And it's kind of the same thing with like Dave Scott when you look at Kona. I mean, he just beat a bunch of hobby joggers, right, to win Kona. Like he got very good at the end. And obviously Dave Scott is a phenomenal athlete. And if we plugged a Dave Scott in now with the current technology, it would be different and he would probably be successful. But, you know, his wins were not really against a deep field like it is now. And Mark Allen's wins were not against a deep field like it is now. And Ben Canute has been good at draft legal, and he's been good at 70.3, which I know did not exist for those guys either. And now he is poised to be the fastest American at Ironman very soon. I hear in your voice this hope or anticipation. Like you think he's going to be the greatest of all time, possibly. Maybe maybe he's already. Possibly. But to say he is already. He's already the most well. He's the most well-rounded triathlete. Perhaps, in but like your argument was done now the second you started mentioning junior championships and mixed team. I was relay. trying to give you the scope, the scope of his career. He's <laughs> yeah, done everything cares. from super sprint yeah. now to Ironman, and yeah. he has shown us that he can do every single distance. I guess the conversation comes down to what defines the greatest of all time. To me, there's only a couple. There's only a couple races in the world that would even matter. And that is in order of least important to most important. I would say 70.3 world championships, least important. To set to, if you want to start making a claim to be in the greatest of all time. Of, within of whatever. world championships? Yeah, 70.3 world championship. Okay. The no least other important world championship is matters. IT. That is true. No other 70.3 win matters because you can't feel everything. Who knows? That 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 field at seven point three world championships is normally a strong field. Olympic medals. That matters. That's the highest one. That that's the that's the second highest one in my book of triathlon great. <laughs> that's the second one. Maybe. The top race, the race that matters the most to be called the greatest triathlete of all time. And I guess that's the debatable part. How do you rank the races that matter is Kona. 
triathletes are measured. But Kona's based every year. The, the Olympics. I know, yeah, but the Olympics that. is only every four years. Yeah, and that's why it's second. <laughs> I guess that's how I see. I don't it. know. I think so the Olympics is he first. He doesn't have Kona is second. He doesn't have what I think would be important in those categories. Now, if you want to broaden the conversation to he's the most hopeful athlete that is the most hopeful American athlete. I could I could understand the argument. Matt Hansen just beat him. So I think there's something to say about that. Just beat him on the course on the same day. So there's like there's a very obvious argument for Matt. And then certainly Sam Long, I don't know yet what the heck we haven't talked about Sam Long. He was in Arizona and just did not have a good day. So I don't know what the heck happened to Sam, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. He's still young. He's still learning how to race. He focused on 70.3 over the course of the last year. To say he was ready for Ironman Arizona is probably a little bit of a stretch. He's probably excited to do it, but that's not where he's been spending his time. Um, He's racing Indian Wells, so I think we'll see a little bit more from Sam in Indian Wells. I think think Sam would have something to say about that. So there's competition there, yeah. But could if Ben is committing to the to the seventy point three long distance events, could he? Could you be the most hopeful for him? Sure, I'd buy that. But I think there's some. He's so who is the uh, who is the best American triathlete of all time for you? Best American triathlete of all time. I don't. We just haven't had a lot of great results, and I agree with your points about some of yeah. the early triathlon days where the competition wasn't quite there so it's almost like different eras the early early eras of triathlon the competition was very slim so you could have a conversation about early era triathlon current era triathlon um looking at athletes that we have on the list today yeah it's it's a mixed bag of people that maybe compete for a top 10 at kona right or even olympics or a 70.3 Ben Canute had a really good race in St. George. But one good race doesn't mean that he's the greatest American right now. Yeah, and I don't know. I I almost think that I'd have to almost go, like, if I was going to pick who who is the greatest American ever right now, I th- I would almost go off the path and say that it's like Andy Potts. And it's not one of the ones that, like, one of the, uh, quote, obvious ones. Tim O'Donnell, uh, why are you, like he's he's got a, a yeah, big but, resume of results. Yeah, but Andy Potts has been fourth at Kona, plus his draft legal results were were superior to uh, Tim O'Donnell. Yeah, I mean, I, I I get the excitement about Ben Canute, but literally twelve months ago, Sam Long was second at seventy point three worlds. So like, let's not get too excited about the most recent let's let's start to see a string of results if ben can start to do it that's great hopefully sam comes back and starts to perform a little bit better um maybe we get some new entries into into the field from the american side we need it yeah i hope so all right um that was a good talk i think i think we're all excited about ben canute no matter where he falls in uh american triathlon lore at the end of all this um, but, uh, I think just really quickly, maybe not an in-depth preview, but don't forget to, to check out the, uh, world triathlon grand final in Abu Dhabi. That's 
going to be really, really early in the morning for most people on Friday is uh, the women's race, I believe, is Friday, and the men's race is Saturday, not quite as early in the morning. I think uh, the Friday race is kicking off at like 1 or 2 a.m., uh, but the Saturday race, I think, is 4 or 5 a.m. It's it's late enough that I might actually be able to get up and, and watch. So uh, check check that out this weekend. Um, it's it's pretty good good racing. The uh, the last couple of races have been really exciting. Um, in the championship, there's a couple people on each side that's it's basically going to be a head to head battle to uh, to see who wins uh, between Hayden Wild and, and Alex E on the men's side and Florida Duffy and Georgia Taylor Brown on the women's side. So um, also under 23s is this weekend. So um, you can check out kind of the next generation of American triathletes and and how they fare on the world stage at uh, at under 23 worlds i'm not waking up this draft eagle stuff is <laughs> all right out we'll we'll fill you in next week <laughs> all right but i do i am interested to see if the norwegians can compete or how they compete yeah, they certainly that's... compete but how do they compete how well yeah that's uh that's another storyline um you know both Christian and Gustav are are on the starting line, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how they they come back down in distance. Cool. All right, everybody. Okay. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe, follow along the podcast. We're going to be going in depth uh, across different race disciplines and how Coach Kotar structures that training. So a lot more informative conversations to come uh, over the next couple podcasts. So thanks again, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Bye.